This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! John Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. Dan Miller. George Sora. Paul T. Jones. Peter Lynch. People wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. My guest for this episode is one of my all-time favorite technical analysts. Helene Meisler started her career on Wall Street in the early 1980s, when a career on Wall Street was actually a contrarian move, let alone being a woman on Wall Street. She eventually found her way to working with trading legend Justin Mamis, and has been charting the markets by hand ever since. Yes, that's pencil and paper for the past 30 years. In this episode, Helene reveals what it was like to work with Justin and what the most important thing she learned from her mentor. We discuss her favorite stock market indicators and how she uses them. Finally, we discuss her favorite trade setup and the unique self-awareness that she's cultivated to help her become the most effective trader she can be. As always, I put up a number of links and charts at thefelderreport.com, and I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Helene Meisler. Helene, welcome to the show. It's really, um, I'm really excited to, to talk to you today. It's actually kind of strange to... You know, get to know somebody you know online that you haven't really talked to much in person. But uh, after following on you on Twitter and you know reading your daily column, it, it feels like I know you. But it's it's really nice to have a chance to to chat with you like this. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, well, let's just start right with the beginning. I know you have uh, an interesting you know background in the industry. How did you actually get your start in finance? Oh, well, uh, I started my life after college in marketing, uh, working for a marketing research firm doing, and this is a long time ago, it was the early 80s, uh, doing like um, taste tests and, and statistical analysis on product placements and stuff like that. And I was actually quite bored. I didn't, I thought I was going to like it a, more, a lot more than I did. And um I decided to look for a job elsewhere, and a headhunter I was working with, I told her I figured advertising would be a good segue, and she said, no, you should be going to work on Wall Street. Uh, and was, so you said this was the early 80s? This would have been 1982. Oh, so the exact bottom, or you know, the, the best buying opportunity in our lifetimes. So uh, that, would, that would have been a really contrarian move, though, right? I mean, that was, that was the death of equities, Cover. Uh, well, it was, I guess, about a year after that. But I mean, I knew nothing about stocks and bonds. I don't even think my parents owned any. And um, it, it, this woman insisted that Wall Street was hiring and she thought I would be great working there. And so she set me up on several interviews. And um, I, uh, <laughs> I will never forget my first interview at Cowan, which was my first job, was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving at four o'clock in the afternoon. And I was <laughs> like, you know, you know, you had all these interview rules, never interview Monday morning at nine, never interview Friday afternoon at five. This was like the ultimate of who is going to hire you. Right. <laughs> yeah. you but of course, you know, you didn't realize that the market closes at four o'clock. And anyway, um, 
I, they made me an offer, and I went to work there. So, At, so this was Cowan. This was in Cowan. What, what were you doing specifically for them? I was an institutional sales assistant, which was I don't know, uh, sort of a glorified administrative assistant. I would call it. Um, in, in that, but I worked for the partner in charge of the New York office. So, you know, the market was just taking off. And as things got busier, he kept dumping more stuff on my desk and, le- you know, I had to learn as I went. Uh, so I was very lucky in that I was in the right place at the right time. Okay. And, you know, and, and probably with the marketing, you know, uh, background, you know, it, was, it wasn't too much of a, a, a jump to move towards, you know, institutional sales. Um, no, but institutional sales was not necessarily about sales back then. I mean, back then, it um, the analysts on the institutional buy side were the people you cared about, not even the portfolio managers. You only cared about the analysts. Um, and so, I mean, I'll tell you what. I look back and I think, I, although I probably thought it at the time, but I was learning so much, I, you know, I didn't scoff very much. But right. um, I look back and I say, God, that was just, they were some of the most boring calls you'd have to make. <laughs> yeah. You know, it would be like, hi, we're raising, we're raising our IBM estimate by a nickel due to a lower tax rate, and we're still recommending the stock. Yeah. But well, you make enough of those calls, you learn the story, you learn what moves stocks, you know. So that was good experience from from that respect to see kind of behind behind the curtain, Wall Street. Oh yeah, I well you know that's the way it worked back then, and then there was that there was a shift probably as we moved into the middle eighties, where um, analysts on the buy side no longer were the ones who voted the commission dollars. But the portfolio managers were now voting the commission dollars. And so we had to move from that sort of, you know, we're changing the IBM estimate due to our tax rate uh, to uh, much more proactive phone calls uh, to the clients. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what, how did you go from there to technical analysis? (laughs) So uh, (laughs) I, uh, I think it was about 1984, 1985, uh, Cowan hired Justin Mamis, who I look back and I think, oh, my God, he was probably the age then I am now. And I thought he was so old. I thought he was like Methuselah. Um, But he did a different kind of technical analysis than I'd seen before. And I just loved listening to him talk about the markets and the way he would write about the markets. And uh, so it became, for me, it became an easy way to integrate his view with the sales call on the fundamental side. And um, in in, uh, 1986, I think it was, I asked if I could spend more time working with Justin to really learn what he did. And they were very accommodating and they allowed it. So... um, I, I was no longer an assistant, obviously, at that point. And I started working with Justin and covering um, hedge funds were, uh, was the coverage, the sales coverage that they gave me. Uh, but back then, let me tell you, there were not a gazillion hedge funds. And they gave me the little ones that were managing like $5 million. 
Okay. And, and what specifically was your, you know, day to day look like then? I mean, were you talking with hedge funds and, you know, trying to, um, sell them analyst picks and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Trying to, uh, exactly. Take your fundamental and your technical and put it together and, you know, give them ideas and, um, Hopefully they would trade through you and you'd get commission dollars. Well, and and so I know you've mentioned in the past on, on Twitter and things, you know, uh, how much some of your mentors have have meant to you. Is Justin one of these? I know I, I recognize the name immediately. I, you know, there's all kinds of books that, you know, traders references. When to sell is the one that comes to mind um, right. immediately. Uh, was he really one book. of that? When to sell? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's something that most, you know, I think that's one of the mistakes investors, the biggest ones they make when they first get into investing is, you know, they have a great idea of, you know, why they want to buy something, but they don't have any discipline for getting out. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, I'll put a link in the, in the, in the notes to this episode on, on, uh, to, to that book. But, uh, was he one of your original mentors that you kind of talk about? Oh, these I, days? I would, I would call him the mentor in, in the business for me. Yes. Um, and, and yeah, and so what? What? What was the most important um, you know thing you really learned from him? <laughs> oh gosh, um, I learned a lot. But I I, I like to tell this story that um, when when the very first night I had moved over to work full time, if you will, with Justin, um, he handed me a pile of charts, uh, paper charts, and a stack of pencils. He showed me how to calculate the logarithmic scale on the charts, and he told me, go ahead and post the charts. You couldn't start until after the market closed, and I was still there at 8 o'clock at night, and I was not happy. And I was thinking, this is ridiculous. He's old. We're going to have to find a way to computerize this. Well, first of all, here I am 30-some-odd years later, I am still posting my charts by hand. And second of all, I walked into the office the next day and said, Justin, come on, we have to be able to computerize this. And he said, there is not only a certain feeling you get from putting the pencil to the paper, but from sharpening the pencil. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about this because I, I do, you know, sometimes you tweet pictures of your, your hand-drawn charts. And you, originally, like you said, you thought it was a joke, but what is the value? I mean, you're still doing it. So what is, what is the value that you found in, in doing that? In um, 1996, I thought I was going to give it up. You know, we were getting into the Internet. It was still dial up. But, uh, you know, all of a sudden there were charts online everywhere. And I thought, well, I could just start looking at charts. And after a month, I realized that <laughs> Justin was right. Um, it's, it forces you to look at the action in, in my case, I don't know, I've never counted, but I think it's 150 to 200 charts I do a, a day. Um, and, and that means you're not just looking at the exciting names, the names that are on the move. And oftentimes you can go through your entire pile of charts and you look at your notes when you're done and you've jotted down three stocks. You're like, God, that was a dull day in the market. Or, you know, you just pick up things that you wouldn't normally pick up because certainly if you're looking at charts on a computer, you're looking for certain parameters. And 
sometimes those parameters don't come to light until the stock actually moves or does something. And when you're doing it by hand, you're sort of, you're getting a feel that there's a change taking place that you wouldn't get by looking at it online or, or putting in some kind of algorithm to come up with, you know, well, if it's at the 50-day moving average line, it has volume and all that sort of stuff happens after a stock has moved. Yeah, so it's it's really getting getting a feel. And, I, and you know, I, ima- I can imagine, you know, what that's like. I, I have a list of, you know, 200 stocks. I don't go through every day, maybe once a week. But you're absolutely right. When I scan through them, I'm looking for certain, you know, patterns and things that, you know, I've recognized in the past. And I skip over all the ones that don't, you know, meet that criteria. So I, I imagine when you're drawing each chart, you know, it, it just forces you to focus on all the stocks, not just the ones that are meeting your criteria. So, um, you, you know, also, it, you will also tend to pick up um, a group move. So in other words, um, I, I don't do my charts like all the airlines together or all the drugs together. I do them alphabetically and then I take notes. Um, on the left side, I write down the good charts and on the right side, I write down the bad charts. And when you're done charting, you look at it and you're like, God, look at all those drug stocks I wrote down. And you wouldn't necessarily pick that up otherwise, I think. I mean, maybe you would, but it's not how I do it. Yeah. Interesting. I, I just have to ask you, I think there are probably going to be some people listening to, I, I have all different types you know, because I'm mainly a value investor. Um, but I do, I, you know, I started looking at technicals, you know, 10 plus years ago um, and find it very valuable to my process. But, you know, there's the age old question, do technicals work because they intrinsically work or do they work because people use them? <laughs> you know, what, what are your thoughts on this, this I idea think- that... Honestly, I think it's both. Um, But I think, you know, more often than not, everything that's known is supposedly already priced into the market. You know, it's I'll give you an example. You go you go to that question when, you know, you say to yourself, "Okay, something feels bullish here. And someone will say to you, well, what could move them? And I think. Well, I don't know. If we knew, we'd be priced in. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. What could take the market down? Well, I don't know. If we knew what could take the market down, it'd be priced in already. So I think that a stock chart represents everything we know already. Yeah. You know, and I I said, I think a stock chart represents, you know, it's a visual representation of supply and demand in the market, but it also, you know, represents sentiment represents all the things that we're trying to un- uncover, you know, when we're doing this, this type of research. So, you know, I, I absolutely agree with that. You know, um, the first thing I notice when I look at your charts and it's uh, something I try and keep in mind when I'm charting too, and I have a really hard time with this is your charts are so simple. You have one line, you have a support or resistance or a trend line, you know, um, and I just think, you know, uh, it just screams at me, keep it simple, stupid. You know, this, it, where, you where does you that don't like all those all those charts people put out with 53 moving average lines and Bollinger Bands and all. Oh, my gosh, it's ridiculous. Like, I don't I know how, how you can begin. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, where, where does that uh, where does that come from? That, 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 the simplicity. 
when you're doing it by hand, that's all you've got is a pencil, a ruler, paper. Right. And you don't want to mark the charts up too much because then you end up having to do a lot of erasing later on, right? When all that stuff doesn't work. Um, Big time. Big time. And and sometimes I don't even use a ruler. Like if I have a nail file on the desk, I'll use that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, I, I don't mean to imply that your process is simple, though. I mean, I, the char- I love the, the charts. It actually is. Well, you know, I, I think it is. But then when you also, you know, start to talk about, I, I think it's deceptively simple because there are a lot of things underlying your broad market view. Um, you use, uh, you know, the overbought and oversold indicators. And, and, and on the surface to a lot of people, I think this stuff might seem quite complex, but maybe you can, you can simplify it for us. All right. Well, I, I, I have probably, I've, again, I've probably never counted 20 or 30 indicators I look at on the market on a daily basis. And um, it's, it's a wonderful thing when all the indicators pretty much say the same thing at the same time. Yet that probably happens once, maybe twice a year. So, you know, to get that kind of, oh, wow, this is it. You don't really get that often. Um, but I, I, I like to use an overbought, oversold oscillator, which the one I use is pretty old fashioned. Most people today use stochastics or RSI or um, there's a few others I don't really know about. But um, I use the 10 day moving average of the net of the advanced decline line which basically is it tells you what the majority of stocks have done for the last 10 days. And if the majority of stocks for the last 10 days have been down, meaning I've got a lot of red, more decliners than advancers, then I'm getting oversold. On the other side, if the last 10 days have been predominantly positive, I'm getting overbought. It's really very basic. But it's telling you rather than based on price, which is what all your other stochastics RSI, those all are based on price. Mine is based on what the majority of stocks are doing, up or down. So it's more of like a breadth indicator. That's all it is. That's all it is. And and what you're always looking for is a divergence. Did the S&P make a lower low and the oscillator makes a higher low? Well, that's a good sign. That's a a bullish sign. That's that the prices are, are are still declining, but breadth is improving. Or or it, it, sometimes it's not necessarily improving. It's just not as bad as it was. Okay, right. So Which means you're losing up. downside momentum, and what and a loss of downside momentum is what you're looking for in an oversold condition. And so this, in, in terms of the, you know, ranking those indicators that you use, where, where does this kind of fall in that process? Is this like one of the most important things you look at? Mm. Ah, gosh. Um, well. I mean, like you said, you want them all to line up at the same time. That's ideal. You know, I, I guess I asked this because I just um, interviewed Tom McClellan recently. Mm. We were talking about. You know, he uses very similar, you know, indicators to assess the breadth and the momentum of breadth in the market. And it just seems to me that this is something that's very important that, like you said, a lot of people are looking at stochastics and RSI. They're not necessarily paying such close attention to something like this. Well, 
I think we've, we've got two things going on here. One is as more and more people trade just the index as opposed to stocks, probably um, oscillators based on price um, are going to look different than an oscillator based on breadth. That's yeah. What what a, what a great point because this huge push to passive that we've seen, and that's the question that I asked Tom was you know how does that affect these advanced decline ratios and things that we're looking at because when money's flowing into all stocks and the indexes essentially equally or you know based on their market cap, you know it does that to devalue these you know these indicators. Um, it can. It can, but again, you know, you can see, you can see changes like for the longest time, let's call it since March until early June. I have thought, despite the fact that the cumulative AD line has gone up and therefore breath has sort of kept pace with the S&P, I have thought there's too many stocks lagging. and. That's very, it's a very hard thing to describe without having a, an absolute statistic to show you. But if you sat over my shoulder and looked at the 200 stocks I post every day, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about because you had so many stocks that just went nowhere. And, and it's very hard to describe that when you probably have, I don't know, a decent number of stocks that are up a nickel a day. Well, you know, a nickel a day is not making you money. And overall, if they're up a nickel today and down a dime tomorrow, overall they're down. But you're not going to get that from a statistic. It's very hard, which is why I also pay attention to the number of stocks making new highs. Because if that's dwindling, well, you know, what does it say? When 100 stocks are making new highs and the S&P is at new highs, that tells you how hard it is to make money on the upside. Yeah, if you're not in the, in the fangs, you're not making money. Um, well, and it's think- not just the fangs. I mean, you know, you, you, have, you had Visa, you had Home Depot, you had a lot of stocks that were doing that, but it was still fairly narrow. Right. Well, and, and to me, that was something that I think was kind of nagging me when I asked Tom that same question, because yeah, the advanced decline line is making new highs. But, you know, uh, there's I, I, I like to look at, you know, the ratio of the equal weight S&P to the market cap weighted S&P. And that ratio has been falling, you know, pretty dramatically, um, actually in rare, rare form. We haven't seen it much in the last, you know, to, to this degree in the last you know, 10 years. And to me, that just screams that, you know, a lot of these these other stocks in the S&P are just like you said, they're falling off. They're not, you know, like they might be rising, but they're not rising nearly as fast as the the top companies in the S&P 500. So, um, yeah, so, you know, and, and, and I thought you were going to tell me, Jesse, don't rationalize an indicator. You know what I talked about? Because I know that's one of your favorite favorite sayings, and I, I think of that all the time, too. You know, but it's true. It's yeah. true, I, which is why I'm not going to rationalize the advanced decline line, but we go back to I hand post the charts. So I can tell you that a portfolio manager who's managing a portfolio of stocks is probably not loving, well, up until June, was probably not loving the market. Right. Because right. you really had to be very concentrated. 
Yeah. And, but, you know, but yeah. in early June, that, that changed. We started to get a lot more charts uh, improving. Okay, and what does that, what does that tell you? That rather well, starting to catch up now? Well, that was one reason that um, I first saw that the Russell looked to me like it was going to start outperforming the Qs. Right, and that's another ratio that, that you look at for basically just determining the, the overall health of the trend. Is that, is that right? When, when the small caps are underperforming, that's, that's unhealthy? Well, I just think that when small caps are underperforming, um, regardless of what the advanced decline line is saying, um, that you tend not to get a great market. You tend to get a market that um, either goes sideways or has like one big spurt up over two days and then does nothing. And the majority of stocks just dribble, at least in a market where the Russell is outperforming, you can have a better chance at finding good stocks that are moving. Right. And yeah, because that's the, the, the overall trend is healthier. And, and, and so that, so that's a lot of it. I mean, you know, this is one of the basics of technical analysis. And I think this is for, for a lot of people to understand is just understanding the overall trend and momentum of that trend is kind of the first, first step. Right. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and for me, that that was huge. I think you know, as a value investor, looking at stocks that are falling rapidly a lot of times and you know dropping out of, out of favor, just understanding the overall market trend and then also the momentum of that name uh, helps to avoid, you know, as Paul Tudor Jones said, getting annihilated by um, you know technicals, annihilated by momentum. So um, you also use the um, McClellan summation index mm-hmm. as part of understanding that overall trend too. Is that right? Right. And so if we go back to the advanced decline line, shouldn't we say the cumulative advanced decline line is making new highs or at least close to it? And the McClellan summation index, which is essentially what, like the third or fourth derivative of the advanced decline line, can barely get out of its own way. I mean, to me, it, it's, it's like a longer term oscillator. And if right. your longer-term oscillator can't get out of its own way, I think that tells you that the majority of stocks are not being able to get out of their own way either. And so that's your that's you know, has you concerned about the overall momentum of the the uptrend currently. Well, it, it tells me that um, we've not you know to get it, it. This is my view. Obviously, others don't always feel this way, but. To me, the best thing the market can do is always is clean out weak holders. Just, you know, a decline, even if it's not huge, but the decline like we had going into the election last year. Um, enough to clean people out where the, the weak holders are gone. And then you can have a good uptrend that's solid, that feels like it's going to go up every day and feel like you, you can grasp a trend. We just don't have that now. <clears throat> and I don't think we've had that since February or March. Okay. And, and well, so to me, that's what the summation index is telling us. And that to me is because we've not had a good clean out. Okay. And, you know, and that really gets to the next question I was going to ask you, which is, you know, the one thing that I really appreciate about, appreciate about your process 
is that you marry sentiment so closely with with the technicals. You know, I see a lot of you know technical analysts who don't pay attention to sentiment at all, and I think it just goes. You can't really extricate the two. You talk about you get a good rally after you shake out the weak holders. Well, that's that's kind of a sentiment thing, right? You you feel like you're at the towards the end of the rally. Um, you see momentum waning, but you also see a lot of, um, you know, I hesitate to use the word, you know, uh, euphoric sentiment, but you see a lot of people feeling really good about themselves for owning stocks over the last, you know, few months or owning, you know, those, those big stocks you're talking about over the last few months. Right. You know, when, when it becomes too easy, like, you know, shooting fish in a barrel, I guess is the expression. Uh, you know, it, it can't be that easy. But when does it end? One doesn't know. Um, but I can tell you that what I don't see now is I don't necessarily feel like I see giddiness. I see a lot of complacency and there's a, there is a difference, you know, that euphoria I don't see, but I see a boatload of complacency as if people think, ah, so we go down 5%. Ah. What's the big deal? Yeah, well, you know, in a 5% correction in the S&P, the average stock is going to fall a lot more, like more like 10 or 15 or 20. So that ah, turns to panic pretty fast. Well, yeah, that's why I tweeted a CNBC poll that came out right after that, um, you know, sell off in the the NASDAQ and the FANGs that we had a week or two ago. And CNBC put out a poll on Monday. You know, asking people how they felt about it, and was it like eighty percent of respondents said this is great news? It's an awesome buying opportunity. <laughs> I thought, okay, well, that's not how you you know you create a sustainable short term low. But um, right. so you know, what are the main things you look at in terms of sentiment to try and gauge that? Well, I gosh, I've got so many sentiment indicators that I use. Um, one of my favorites, I will say, is and always has been, is the investor's intelligence. Uh, because it's been around since the 60s. They are very scientific in their methodology. Uh, They have a set number of newsletter writers, and they don't poll them and ask them what they think. They read those letters every week and determine if that person is bearish or bullish. And um, so to me, it's probably one of the only scientific studies sentiment surveys that we have out there. Um, So I put a lot of faith in that. And when that gets over 60% bulls, the market has rarely continued well on the upside. Okay. So that's, that's kind of one of the quantitative ones. You know, I, one of the reasons I love following you on Twitter is you do talk about, you know, this more anecdotal stuff that you're seeing on, on Twitter um, you know, I think you probably follow a lot more people than I do. I, I, uh, you know, so I don't get a lot of that. So I kind of rely on you actually to share you know, how, how are traders, you know, uh, Twitter traders feeling right now. Um, and then you also, I know, watch, um, the, the, you know, financial TV a lot in order to kind of understand, um, how people are feeling. Cause that's, I mean, that's just a reflection of how traders are feeling too, right? You get a great sentiment feel off of turning on the television. I I can't listen to it all day because it just, you know, starts to be background noise. So I have to mute it a lot. But um, yeah. And and to me, one of the I I know I, I make fun of 
a lot of the stuff on CNBC a lot. But one of the great things is that when you have the same people on all the time, you can watch their emotions shift. And, and that's a sentiment tell. And you can, you can see them react to price. I mean, you can see my pinned tweet is nothing like price to change sentiment. Um, and, and when you see them shift based on the movement of a stock, you know sentiment is shifted. Right. Because, and, and, and you probably, you know, get a good feel for, um, well, you know, I, I hate to, to bring this up. I don't know him very well or, you know, I don't read his newsletter, but, you know, Dennis Gartman is one that people, you know, proudly have followed and, and got to understand his own um, psychology, you know, toward the market. So I, I think when you start picking a few people like that and you can see how they react to different things and, and, <clears throat> and their process, it, it maybe helps um, understand or reflect a broader, broader sentiment signal. Is that, is that what you're saying? Well, if you just take Dennis, for example, um, there was a time that oh, it probably still is. Everybody thinks Dennis is a fade. Oh, you know, Dennis, Dennis, Dennis. Oh, you got to fade him. Well, you know what? That's when everybody thinks that a certain person is a fade. You know, I got to go the other way. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 well, that's actually one of my favorite things to look at. I, you know, over the last 20 years, I've seen times where, you know, the, the major media outlets start running headlines where they, they talk about Warren Buffett's out of touch because he doesn't own enough tech stocks or what have you. And to me, that's just a wonderful signal that, yeah, that, you know, people have gotten the hubris level is off the charts with the fact that I'm smarter than Warren Buffett, right? So, yeah, so you look for those sort of things. Um, uh, I, I often I often say that if Warren Buffett were to start buying stocks like Netflix and Amazon, that would be like me becoming a momentum trader. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And right. if it does, be scared. Well, I mean, he has been buying a ton of Apple, you know, and so, I, you know, maybe that is is some type of a signal. You know, yeah, he'll, like you said, he'll never buy Netflix, Salesforce.com, these types of things. Um so but I, I just love that sentiment is such a big part of your process because that's, that's something that I've always found, you know, valuable. And uh, is that just, you know, experience of seeing this stuff, you know, over the years and seeing how it works or where did that, that appreciation for sentiment come from? Oh, I guess so. I've always been a big fan of human nature in general. And if there's one thing that we can't change, it's human nature. And, um, you know, I, I think that people will always be scared at lows and always be happy at highs because that's how we are in our lives. So and how is the market any different? Oh, absolutely right. And, you know, and that's the one thing that I think, you know, it's just I, I agree with you that most of the time, you know, the markets are effectively pricing all the information out there. But, you know, in terms of believing the efficient market hypothesis, you know, would we have had these massive bubbles in real estate and the dot-com bubble if markets were truly efficient? No, people would have not pushed prices to the, 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 the levels that they did. You, you bring up a good point. So um, what does that say? You know, people will always be scared of lows. People will always be euphoric at highs. What does that say about 
um, the this this huge push to passive investing that we're seeing. I mean, what what is your take on it? Um, you know, because the the idea behind it is okay. Well, I'll just buy everything and I'll own it and I'll expect a historical rate of return and I'll be able to hold through draw, drawdowns because I have a twenty year time frame. Is kind of the idea behind it. <laughs> what, right from a sentiment perspective, what what are, what are your thoughts on on this big push to passive investing? I call it a lot. There's a lot of complacency. Um, you know, everybody always talks. Oh, there's a bubble here. There's a bubble there. I really believe there's a bubble in ETFs. Um, would I be able to time it? No. But are there too many ETFs? Yes. What you had in um, in the dot com era was you had all these brand new IPOs. You know, companies rushed to market. Well, you don't have that now. Now all you have, and you don't have that same fanfare. But you have, I'll just create an ETF. I'll just create another ETF. It's sort of like every week there's 50,000 new ETFs created and ridiculous ones that barely even trade. Right. And, and you know. And like it's almost like they came up with the ETF just because they had a cute ticker symbol. Well, I think, it, you know, it's. Uh, I, I interviewed Stephen Bregman recently and he talks about it's just Wall Street adapting with the times, trying to find a way to profit from you know, this, this new craze and it's just wall street's ML, um, is, you know, people <laughs> want ETFs, we'll give them ETFs, you know? So, um, right. Right. yeah, Feed you know, I, I want it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and so I think it's, I think the, the, the move to low cost and all this stuff is, is a great idea for most people, but I think probably people don't realize that they're also being taken advantage of with a lot of these ETFs too, that are, like you said, I don't know if they have much value, but uh, I want to highlight something you said before. You said that you love it when all the indicators kind of line up and give you, um, you know, a, a strong, you know, buy or sell signal. Um, but you talked about the rarity of that opportunity. And I think that's something that most investors or traders don't really appreciate. They want to trade all the time. And uh, I mean, how often, how many really good fat pitches do you get in a year? One or two. In terms of the market, in terms of the market as a whole, right, I'd say one or two. I mean, in in a good year that, you know, in a year where you're the markets are volatile, you'll get three or four, five, maybe. But that's that would be extraordinary. And so, you know, is it, uh, you know, obviously you have other, you know, individual uh, stock trades and stuff that you put on. But I mean, I think it's important to um, for for kind of novice traders to understand that those kind of opportunities don't come on very often and to try and force, you know, that's one of the, the big mistakes people make, trying to force things when they, when they don't have a great setup. Speaking of that, what is your, you know, your favorite, you know, trade setup, not necessarily for the broad market, but for an individual stock? Um, you have like a bread and butter trade? I do. But first, I just want to tell you that 20 some odd years ago, <laughs> um, I, I moved from the sell side to the buy side and um, I was managing money and it it took me several months to realize that just because my business card said trader didn't mean I had to trade every single day. And it was a tough lesson to learn. Um, and I would tell everybody that that's probably the smartest thing I ever realized in my career is that you do not need to trade every single day and, and it saves you a lot of money. Trade when you see it, not because you're sitting in front of the screen. 
Right. And that, that's just such a great point. I think I use the analogy when I was talking to Bill Fleckenstein recently, he seems talking about how little he trades and, um, you know, I, I use the analogy of a, you know, I, I love to play music. And so, you know, you listen to the great, you know, jazz musicians and they're most adept at using silence, you know, as, you know, you don't, I don't want to listen to the guys that just play a million notes super fast, right? I want to listen to the guys who know how to play here and not when not to play. And uh, I think it's the same thing with trading, knowing when to trade and, and when, you know, knowing when not to trade is just important as knowing when to trade. So. Um, it, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, do you have? T- tell me about this. Uh, your fat pitch. Your your. Uh, what's what's the so, trade you look for? Well, I'm I'm kind of a base picker, which means I don't like stocks when they're up. Uh, you know, a lot of people have a lot of success trading. Let's say a stock that's up that pulls back to a trend line by the by the pullback to the trend line, and it's a terrific methodology. Not for me. I, if I if I started to do that, you could be sure it would break the trend line. It's, it's just not my style. My style is that I like stocks when they're down and out and they've been forgotten. And, no, you know, let's say like a former winner that nobody talks about anymore, or that all of a sudden has stopped going down and has gone sideways for months and months and months. Uh, those are often, to me, the places that you can benefit the most. Well, and it's and it's probably because you're not just looking to squeeze a couple of a couple of bucks out of the stock. You're looking for a change in trend and a new, you know, uh, a new, you know. So you're not day trading. You're looking for, you know, um, what? And, and that's a good question. What is your time frame for a trade typically? Oh, it depends. I would say usually it's longer than a few days. Yeah. Um, I, I am much better off when I uh, buy something for an intermediate term move, which is, you know, at least four to six to eight to 12 weeks. Uh, and sometimes a lot longer than that. But um, I'm I'm not particularly good at telling you what the next hot stock is going to be for the next week. That's just not that's just not what I'm very good at. I mean, in other words, if I. If I like a chart and it works like in the next three days, that's like a miracle. It probably means sell it immediately because it's really (laughs) not going to work. But a chart that develops over time that I'm early on, which is unfortunately a curse of mine, um, are the ones that I've had a lot more success with over time. Gotcha. Now, um, I mean, I'll give you an example. Back in, I don't know, God, I think maybe the late 90s, I think it was, um, everybody was trading hot tech stocks. And I bought Amgen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, nobody cared about Amgen. I think I tripled my money in Amgen. But yeah. it was it was plotting, you know, like maybe went up a dollar a day, maybe, maybe, when everything else was going up 30 40 $50 a day. Well, I think people who trade, you know, a lot of people, I mean, there are people who've been around, but people who trade biotechs and stuff today don't know what biotechs were like, you know, uh, 15, 20 years ago. They literally did did nothing. Um, I, I remember <laughs> biotechs that would just literally go sideways for years and years and years, sideways to down, 
you know, until they got an approval of something, and then it would rally. You know, it's like the, the biotechs of the last, you know, I don't know, five this of this bull market, five, six, seven years. It's not something I've I've ever ever seen before. Something I'm used to. But yeah, there were there were great opportunities in 1990,000 for down and out stocks. Something that I think is different than today. Uh, you know, all those you know bricks and mortar stuff, especially back then, was just so out of favor. Um, and I guess if you're seeing it some of the real retailers today. Um, is is retail uh, a sector that you're looking at or interested in at all? I am because regardless of the fact that everybody seems to think they're dead, dying, and have one foot in the grave, uh, one thing I think that's happened, well, a few things. I think we had a major expansion of retail um, after the 08 low. Uh, there, There was still a lot of building out in retail. Why, I don't know, but there was. And, um, you know, retail was quite hot in from 09, maybe 2010 until maybe two years ago. And uh, I, what I think we're, we've got going on now is we've got a real sorting out of who's, who's weak and who's strong. And eventually there will be survivors. There always are. Uh, the American consumer does just that consumes. Uh, I don't think that they're going to only go to Amazon forever in a day and there will be winners. Uh, so I do think that we'll start to see bases being built in retailers uh, going forward. And, yeah. and the, the, the longer term winners will emerge. Okay. But you're not seeing, you know, many bases just yet. I've got a few, um, you know, but, um, but in terms of uh, long term, I don't have very many longer term ones yet. No, I've got yeah, shorter term ones. You know, I've, I've written about a few of them. Yeah, uh, I've written about a few of them, but mostly, I, I think now you're you're just playing for trades. Right. Okay. Um, why? You know, maybe I don't. I don't know if this is. Uh, uh, well, it's just something, you know, I noticed and, and I, first of all, I love your, your process because it just, it's exactly why I started studying technical analysis because I'm looking for down and out stocks and I'm looking for technical signs that confirm my idea that something's basing. So um, maybe that's why I, you know, I just love reading, reading your stuff is because it's along those same lines. But what, what is your opinion? Why are there so few uh, women interested in trading and, and finance and stuff. I mean, I can't get my wife to listen to me for two minutes on any of these ideas or things I'm looking at. Well, what, uh, I, you know, and honestly, I'll just say, I think, you know, women generally probably make better traders because it's easier for them to take their ego out of the process. So I, I'm very encouraging it. You know, I have, I have students, um, here at, here in Bend, I teach some classes and uh, I always love to see, when women, you know, come take the class because it's not something you see, it's not as common as it should be. What, what are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'll tell you when I, uh, when I first went to work on Wall Street, uh, you want to talk about no women. There were right. really very few. Uh, I, I, like? I, I mean, I, I, well, certainly we weren't even wearing slacks back then. You had to wear a suit <laughs> or, I mean, a dress was a big deal because it was always a skirt and a jacket. Um, 
And and I also remember, uh, I think when I went to work at Goldman, which was in 1989, uh, I, I bet there were no more than five professional women on the trading floor of, I don't know, 300, maybe wow. 300 plus, I, I guess. Um, it was rare to see a woman uh, on the trading floor. And, and now I think you see a lot more of them. So I don't know. I'm sort of encouraged that there were more professional women who are trading and, and investing. And so I, think in the right direction. I think we've come a long way. <laughs> we've come a long way. Yeah. Celebrate that. But why, uh, I don't know, I guess why, um, I, it, it, I, maybe and that's part of the you know the technical technological advance of it is it doesn't necessarily feel like a boys club you know at the office so much anymore. Um, but uh, you know, I, generally, I think you know women make you know, it's easier for me to, to teach somebody how to invest um, when they can take their ego out of it. And so, and I think <laughs> I find I find women are better than, at that than men. So it's um, also I I I think women are better at multitasking. Yeah. And um, I, I think when you're looking at so many different markets, you're multitasking. Right. So I, I just, you know, perhaps it's just a different way of viewing it. But so why don't more women do it? Do it? I, I don't know. I, I, I wish I had an answer. I don't have one. <laughs> Maybe they're just not as interested in in money as us money-driven guys. <laughs> you know, I also think there's um, a certain lack of security in doing it. You know, you, you don't have that weekly paycheck. Right. Um, which maybe many women would not feel the confidence. Right. Um, it's a, You know, maybe that, that's a good point because, you know, guys are a little bit more risk-taking generally. Yes. Um, due to our yes. testosterone. So, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that, that's been an interesting point. I know you are, you have a lot of other passions outside of the markets. Um, you're a huge tennis fan. Um, you enjoy uh, horse racing and uh, you're an accomplished baker. I, I see your tweets on the stuff you're baking. And I think, God, I need to go back to uh, test that out because it looks phenomenal. What, are there any of these things that, uh, that have, you know, taught you about um, trading or investing or have parallels outside of, you know, uh, that? Or are they just an outlet to, you know, be able to turn off that, that financial mind and work on something different? Well, I don't think you really ever turn it off. So um, it, it's very difficult. I mean, it's I'll give you just an example. We took a, a drive down to visit my father-in-law this weekend, which is down near Springfield, Missouri. And... Um, you know, I can't help myself. The first thing I notice is, oh, look at all those help wanted signs. Oh, look, <laughs> look right. at all the construction I see. Look at, you know, you can't look at the truck traffic. Look, at, you can't help it. I mean, if you turned it off, I guess you probably would be very good at what you're doing. Right. So um, I, I don't think you can turn it off anywhere. Uh, but there are analogies in, in everything uh, that we do, I think. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned horse racing, which is, I would not necessarily call it a passion, but uh, I do like it and I enjoy it. And um, I I think it's always interesting to, uh, because it's a sport and, and sport is always interesting. And, and 
really the market is a sport in many ways. It's it's a it's a a team of bulls versus a team of bears. And who's winning? Right. And I, I don't mind the game analogy at all. In fact, I, you know, Paul Tudor Jones in the in the trader documentary that was filmed in 87, he talked about that's how he got interested in, in trading was he was playing, you know, backgammon with his uh I think fraternity brothers, and they were all real competitive in different games. And one guy finally told him, you know, hey, if you are interested in games and, you know, competition, let me, let me introduce you to the greatest game on earth, uh, Trading Futures. Huh. Um, so I've always thought that, that really resonated with me because that, that's kind of how I, I look at it, too. Um, I, I want to just uh, circle back to something. I mean, I, I've noticed in, in, in just talking with you and a lot of the things uh, – not just listening to or reading your tweets, but during this conversation, it really seems like you have a good um, self-awareness. You understand what you're good at, what you're not good at. And um, I, I, gosh, I just think that's so critical to being successful in the markets. Is that just a function of um, successes and failures, you know, teaching you um, what you're good at and what you're not? I mean, where, where does that self-awareness come from? Oh, gosh. Um well, yeah, uh, I'll tell you something. My my uh, my husband, who is a commodity trader, uh, always says if we go to the horse races and he wins the first race, he always says, oh, it's going to be a bad day. <laughs> right. Because if you win the first race, chances are you're going to lose the next eight. Right. Um, and so I, I often think back to um, people whose first trade or first few trades are all winners probably don't learn as much as if their first few trades were losers. Right. And I feel like I learned something more off a losing trade than I ever learn off a winning trade. Uh, I, I learn, or at least I try to learn not to repeat that mistake. Whereas if I have a winning trade, I, I don't necessarily, sometimes I, view most of the times I think, Oh, I got lucky. Yeah. So, well, it just goes it, hand in hand with, you know, putting on a trade, you never want it to be too easy or feel good when you're doing it. Right. You know, if it, if it feels good, it's not, it doesn't, it's not going to work out. Right. It has to feel not, not so good. I mean, then, then maybe it's just a sentiment. Well, standpoint. you know, in the old days, in the old days, you had to short on an uptick, Right. Right. You couldn't just short into the hole. You had to short on an uptick, which meant you had to be wrong on a short. Right. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. how are you going to be right if you were shorting on the downtick? And and yeah. so, yeah, it, it never, a shorting a stock never felt good because it was going up. And, and maybe that's, you know, that just from my, I, I was head trader at a hedge fund where we had a short only fund. And so I was doing a lot of that in the late nineties. So maybe that's, maybe that's uh, where I get that from. I don't know. Well, but, so you understand what I mean? I mean, you have yeah. to be wrong to start the trade off or it would, or it wouldn't even happen. Right. Right. Well, I, I just think that self-awareness is, is critical. And also looking at mistakes as, you know, I think it was one of the Market Wizards books. One of the, one of the guys in there talks about mistakes as tuition at the School of Trading. And when you look at it that way, um, you know, you do need to pay some tuition uh, before you get somewhere. So, um, Helene, I, I really want to thank you so much for taking the time um, to do this. Uh, you have, you know, um, been an inspiration to me and, and just uh, I've learned a lot from following and reading your stuff. 
for the last few years. So I'm, I'm really grateful to share your, your wisdom with my audience. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was very nice chatting with you. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. Uh, you can follow Helene on Twitter at H Meisler. She puts up a ton of great content there along with her opinion on what's going on in the markets on a regular basis. Um, but the best way to keep up with her ideas is to read her daily column. It's called Top Stocks at thestreet.com. I've put up a link to her daily column along with a variety of other links and charts that we discussed in this episode at thefelderreport.com. I want to thank you all for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high.